This is the Yale University Press Podcast. I'm Michael Hoke. When it comes time to provide care for those who once cared for us, where can we turn? Today, I'm joined by Jody Gasfriend, a licensed clinical social worker and vice president of senior care for care.com. Her latest book is My Parents Keeper, The Guilt, Grief, Guesswork, and Unexpected Gifts of Caregiving, a practical guide to a broad range of caregiving situations. Jody, thank you for coming on. It's a pleasure. Let's start with your own experience um, with caring for a parent. Uh, What was your experience like? Well, my father was diagnosed with dementia at the age of 72. And this was back in the 90s when not a lot of people were talking about the challenges that family caregivers face, nor were they talking about sandwich generation caregivers, which I was. I had three school-age kids full-time job, a husband who traveled for business, and lo and behold, I was traveling back and forth across the state of Massachusetts to help my mom figure out the right care for my dad. And this really got me thinking, especially being in the workplace, how do people juggle it all? And I really wanted to be there for my father, and I really wanted to help my mother. But gradually, things started to pile up, and I was unaware of how stressed I really felt over time. And I think that's pretty typical of family caregivers. They just keep adding, adding, adding to their plates, and then all of a sudden, they realize that they're overwhelmed and they're at risk for burnout. And how do you know when you've hit that point? How do you know when you've hit a point where maybe you need extra help with your parents' care? Well, what I say in my book is the best thing is to plan ahead. And that's kind of hard because people don't typically cram for a crisis. But we are all in a situation where we are either likely to be family caregivers, we are, or we may need care ourselves. And there are roughly 40 million unpaid family caregivers in the United States alone. And and many don't even identify as family caregivers. These are people who are helping take mom to the doctors, making sure the home health aide showed up on time, making sure a parent takes their medication. Uh, And what I recommend is to have conversations with your parents early on before they're in a crisis and need help about what type of options they are considering, what kinds of financial resources they might have to pay for care. If you're in the workplace, it's good to find out, are there employer-supported elder care benefits? More and more companies are providing that. If you have siblings, have conversations about what are your concerns, what types of care might be appropriate for mom or dad as uh, they become more in need of help. So anticipating things really can make a huge difference um, so that you aren't faced with a crisis and you don't know what to do. And how do you have the discussion with your parents um, about things like this? I think that's that's a sort of a, 
a kind of uncomfortable subject for a lot of people, whether it's talking about finances um, or end-of-life care, things like that. How do you start that conversation? Well, it can be really uncomfortable, and I think people avoid it to their own detriment. So I, I make a number of recommendations. One is if you do have siblings, get together first without your parents and just share your thoughts and concerns and observations. Are there things that you are worried about that have changed that seem different from the typical behavior that you might observe with a parent. So for example, my father, when he first got diagnosed with dementia, started losing things and missing appointments. And initially, we just chalked that up to absent-mindedness. But when he got lost going to the post office, a couple-mile trip from our house, which he had done hundreds of times, uh, and needed uh, my mother to pick him up, we knew that something had changed, and we got together and sort of compared notes and realized that it was it was time to uh, to get him some help and to get a thorough medical evaluation. So that's really step one. I I, I suggest that it's a series of conversations, not a one shot deal. And sometimes the adult children decide that it's best to do this together. Sometimes one child is appointed to uh, test the waters. And I suggest asking parents if they have any concerns because one mistake I've seen adult, adult children make is to tell their parents what they think is wrong and then follow it up with the help that they think they need. And when it feels coercive to a parent, you're more likely to face resistance. And I have a whole chapter dedicated to when a parent needs but refuses help. So approach it as a collaborative process and find out if there are areas that maybe they do need help, shoveling the walkway, um, doing some of the house cleaning, transportation is a big issue. Uh, And then you have to approach uh, very respectfully the issue of money. So often we discover that our parents don't have long-term care insurance, financial resources to pay for long-term care. And we're faced with sticker shock because it's pretty expensive. So all of those topics really require a series of conversations um, that can take place over time. And going back to this idea of if you have siblings, um, getting you know getting together with your siblings and discussing some of these things... Um, how do you deal with siblings who may push back on um, on caregiving, on the idea that maybe your parents need extra help, or or maybe your siblings don't want to be involved at all? Um, how do you how do you deal with those sort of obstacles? Common problem. So what we will see is a primary caregiver who most often is a daughter, who's doing the lion's share of caregiving and really frustrated with her other siblings who she feels is not pulling their fair share. So one of the things I suggest is it's not always equal. Not everybody can carry the same weight. And it's important to look at siblings realistically and to see where their strengths and limitations are. And perhaps you have a brother who would be really great at doing research on legal and financial issues, but really not so good at having direct conversations with mom about her failing memory. What we also see is siblings who disagree about what mom and dad need, and that can really lead to an impasse. So for example, one sibling says, 
absolutely, mom cannot stay at home. She's really unsafe. She needs to move. We really need to make sure she understands that this is an untenable situation. And the other sibling says, well, what are you talking about? Mom's always been kind of forgetful, and she doesn't want to move. She's fine at home. Let's just get her some in-home help. And if the siblings can't come together on some kind of agreement, usually what happens is it's very difficult to have a collaborative conversation with a parent and get a plan moving forward. So in those scenarios, I suggest bringing in an objective senior care expert. Could be a care manager, it could be a mediator, um, it could be some kind of uh, employer-supported elder care support that's offered through the workplace. Someone who really understands the landscape and can bring the siblings together and hear them out and then make some recommendations about what makes the most sense. And what about um, what about some of the pushback you may receive from one parent uh, who's trying to care for the other parent, and maybe it's getting to be uh, beyond the point where they're able to do that on their own? Um, how do you uh, overcome that obstacle? Well, spousal caregivers, which my mother was one, are actually at the most risk for chronic illness, for injury, for depression, and for burnout. So it's important to be aware not just of the needs of the person who needs the care, but the parent who is providing the care. And in my family situation, my dad was at home for six years, and my mother was the primary caregiver. But over time, we all realized that this was an untenable situation. My dad ended up in a wheelchair. He uh, needed total care. And my mother was at risk providing that care. So we made the really tough decision to place him in a nursing home where he stayed for six years. And my mother reluctantly agreed to that and saw that that was what was best um, not only for him but also for her. So um, really recognizing that um, oftentimes people don't see eye to eye on how to provide the best care. And what I tell adult children is that you can't force a plan on an adult unless that adult has been deemed medically incompetent because of dementia or some other illness. Our parents have the right to make decisions, even bad decisions. And that can be really difficult when adult children are worried about their parents' safety. So uh, I suggest introducing help incrementally, not all at once, trying to give our parents as much control as possible in the decision-making, having conversations about what they want and what concerns they have. Oftentimes, a parent says, I don't want a stranger in my house. Well, what typically will happen when a caregiver comes and it's a good match is that caregiver is no longer a stranger, and they have a relationship with that caregiver, and they grow to rely on that person. So things can change, but it does take time, and it does take consensus. And what are so let's say you have a parent who has just been diagnosed with dementia or alzheimer's or or something like that what are the first steps you should do like what 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 should you do as soon as you get this news whatever the diagnosis is you want to learn about what is the progression of that particular 
illness. And with dementia, with Alzheimer's disease, we know that it's a progressive disease and that eventually people are going to need more and more care. And it can take five years, 10 years, even longer. With my dad, it was 12 years. So knowing that and knowing that the needs will change over time, it's important to do a number of things. It's One is sort of the brass tacks of legal and financial planning. Does the person have a healthcare proxy, someone to make decisions on their behalf in the, when they are unable to do so? Is there a durable power of attorney, someone to make financial decisions on their behalf? Um, really um, doing some estate planning. Is the per person eligible for Medicaid in the state where they reside? You want to plan way ahead for that eventuality if they may need care in a nursing home like my dad, how is that going to be paid for? The average nursing home in this country is about $85,000 a year and can be more than twice that in some states. So those are kind of the basic issues. And then the other pieces are making sure that you're connected to a good uh, medical facility with a memory disorder program. And there is a lack of geriatricians in this country. So if you can't have access to a, a good geriatrician, find a primary care physician who really understands how to work with an aging population. And then getting support for the primary caregiver, if that's a another parent or a sibling, um, making sure that they understand how to, how to care for someone with dementia. I suggest in my book, the Alzheimer's Association is a tremendous resource. They even have a 24-7 hotline to give information, caregiving tips and resources. And then, as I mentioned before, getting siblings on the same page and mapping out who will do what and when as the course of the illness progresses. And going back to this um, idea of finding a, a either um, a physician who specializes in this or a, or a primary care physician who knows uh, more about this, as a caregiver... What's the typical? What's your typical role in the process of finding a, a, a physician and um, going to the physician with your parents or asking the right questions? What What's the role? Well, your parent has to give you permission. Uh, I suggest in my book that it is really helpful if you are an adult child or a family member to um, attend those. Uh, office visits, and I give a checklist of the things that you should do ahead of time, questions you should ask, um, things you should think about. Because um, even though under the healthcare confidentiality laws, the physician cannot give you specific information without your parents' permission, you can share observations and you can say, you know what, I'm really concerned about dad's driving, and here's what I've observed. And when my mother and I took my father to see a, a, a specialist in memory uh, disorder treatment, we did talk about driving. And the doctor actually said to my father that it was time for him to stop driving. And we were fortunate that my father agreed to that. Hmm. So I think there are a number of conversations that you can have with a healthcare professional that can provide them with more data, more information um, outside of perhaps what your parent might be relaying that will be very helpful in terms of planning ahead. And do you recommend um, 
for example, if your parent has been diagnosed with something, do you recommend um, keeping track of these things in a, in a more formal way, maybe writing them down so that you can share these things with uh, with doctors? Yeah, I mean, I suggest having a notebook that also can be shared with siblings. There, there are also online resources that people can use that can confident, confidentially track information. I think it, whatever works best for you and your family members. Uh, <clears throat> but if the uh, doctor has recommendations, it's really helpful to write that down and then relay it to other family members who are part of the caregiving team. And I also suggest if you're going to a doctor's appointment with a parent, make a list of the most important questions up front because these doctor's visits are not that long and don't save the most important concern or question for the end. You may not get to it. So really prioritize them and make sure that you get the information that you need discussed early on in that visit. And what should you expect um if and when a parent uh, needs to go into hospice care? Well, the chapter on letting go really talks about a lot of end-of-life issues that are emotionally wrenching and can be also logistically confusing. So hospice is a very comprehensive form of care that's actually paid for under uh, most insurances as well as Medicare. But what we often see is people avoid hospice until the very, very end um, of life and don't fully utilize the benefit. And typically, hospice uh, is for people who have a six-month prognosis and they have a terminal illness and they're having care and comfort measures. And it's very comprehensive. It provides uh, medical help, nursing, social work, bereavement, spirituality, um, and really provides both a person with the terminal illness and the family with a tremendous level of support. And it's often provided in home, but it can be provided in an institutional setting. But someone has to be ready to accept hospice care. And as I mentioned in my book, many times people resist this because it can be obviously very difficult to say, yes, I'm ready to have end-of-life support. But what I've heard from so many people over the years is I wish I had chosen um, to get hospice sooner or looked into it earlier because it was such an important source of comfort to our loved ones and to our family. And when the the parent or, or person that you're caring for passes away, what what is the usual sort of process? What what do you go through as the person who is, you know, providing some level of care for them? And, of course, as um, as a child of one of the parents who passes away, what, what is the usual sort of process? Well, the bereavement process, even though there are very distinct stages, is sort of more circuitous than it is linear. People go through different types of grieving, Um, I had talked to people whose parents died many, many years ago and were still bereft. Uh, And you have to allow yourself the room and the ability to grieve at your own pace. There are bereavement support groups, which many people find really helpful. 
Um, and it can be further complicated by a conflicted relationship with a parent. Uh, and sometimes people feel remorse or regret or frustration. On the other hand, there are people who experience what um, is called earned relief, and it sounds counterintuitive, but for many people who are in a heavy-duty, hands-on caregiver role, uh, maybe a spouse or an adult child, even though there's sadness and loss, there may be a sense of relief. The person is no longer in pain, um, that the person is no longer struggling, and that you become freed up to explore other avenues of your life. And people sometimes feel guilty about that, but uh, it's a normal part of the grieving process. And with my family, we all found ways to keep my father's memory alive. And I think that can be very healing. Sometimes there are legacy initiatives where someone is, their family history is told or um, stories are shared or special traditions are passed on. And I think that's one of the ways that as family members, we let go but still hold on to that person's memory and their essence. I think one of the the fears people often have um, is that they're going to watch a parent sort of waste away, whether it's dementia or or some other disease, um, and it's not going to be the person that they they knew their whole lives. Um, in your experience, both personally and, and through your work, do you find that most people don't have that experience, that even though they've watched their parent uh, pass away over some length of time, you're saying you keep these memories alive. Is that the typical response that you've found? Yes, I think that people, you know, the, you know, as the title of the book, there is grief, there is guilt, but there are unexpected gifts. And uh, I spoke to about 50 family caregivers with a wide range of situations, and most of them experienced some unexpected gift, whether it was increased closeness, whether it was an understanding of their parents' family history, uh, whether it was the gift of patience or perspective on what's important in life, or just being present and not having our minds filled with all the to-dos and really just being able to connect. And there's so much emphasis, especially with dementia, on all that is lost. And a lot does get lost. My father had a tremendous fund of knowledge. He was a PhD psychologist, um, a very learned man, and there were many things he was no longer able to do or remember. But I think it's also important for families to be able to focus on what is still there. Um, the ability to give and receive love does not need to be extinguished by a devastating illness. So the capacity for connection is um, very much there, but people who have dementia need help with connection. So I think that's where the uh, the hope comes in and where the unexpected gifts come in, and that you have to find ways to stay connected to that person. Sometimes it's through music, sometimes it's through touch, sometimes it's through conversation, or just being physically present. And so often I hear families saying, well, I don't think he really knows I'm there. I don't think it really matters that we visit him. Yes, it does. It matters. And I encourage family caregivers to find ways to um, hold on 
to the person um, while they're still there and, and keep that memory alive when the loved one is gone. All right. Well, the book is My Parents Keeper, The Guilt, Grief, Guesswork, and Unexpected Gifts of Caregiving. Jody, thank you for coming on. Thanks so much. That does it for this week's episode. You can find more at yalebooks.yale.edu or on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or your favorite app. And while you're there, if you like what we're doing, please subscribe and leave us a rating.